The fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later Wait, Well, that's you. That's, yes, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> Take two. One of us is in the summer reading program and I, the other one. I'm in the Audible summer reading program it's or the the, uh, the Libby one. Yeah, okay. So yeah. It's I'm not reading American Prometheus on the drive back and forth to work. That's a haul. It is. It's 28 <laughs> hours long. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Anyhow, later in the show, we'll celebrate Black Voices coming to Barrington Stage and Pittsfield this week. And Ursat's word nerd, Emin Shea, on why the words aspirational, blue moon, and brawl were trending this week. But we're joined in the studio by the new president and CEO of the Community Foundation of Western Mass, Megan Burke. Megan Burke is the fifth president of the Community Foundation, which started in 1991. She began her career working on international peace and security issues at the Ford Foundation and through the United Nations. She also lived in Nicaragua, where her work supported the emerging LGBTQ plus movement and the development of a nationwide campaign to advance human rights. Megan Burke also led the Nobel Peace Prize winning international campaign to ban landmines, an international network of nonprofits engaged in advancing a ban on anti personnel landmines and cluster munitions worldwide. We are, uh, I'm humbled to be in your yeah, presence. Yeah, for sure. I was about to say, like, I feel like <laughs> like I need to be doing more with my life when I read some of our guests' CVs. So, okay. do you have a Nobel Peace Prize at home? Well, first, thanks very much, Monty and Khalees, for having me. I do not have a Nobel Peace Prize at home, but I will give you one little quick cool fact. Yeah. That when you do work for an organization that has won a Nobel Peace Prize, you get to nominate prize winners every year if you want to. Wow. Which is kind of a cool little perk. That is cool. That is really awesome. It's better than being a member of, like, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I mean, for sure. It's a much smaller group, I'm imagining. But it's cool because we had Ira Helfand from Northampton, who's been part of two Nobel Prize winning organizations here. And now we've got you, Megan Burke. There we go. We should talk about your uh, idea about cluster munitions in the Biden administration, but that's not why Certainly we brought timely. you here. <laughs> we did want to talk to you about the work that the Community Foundation has been doing in the Western Mass Farm Resiliency Fund, but we'll get to that in just a little bit. For those who don't know what the Community Foundation of Western Mass is or does... And who I, didn't walk past your, your building on their way to their cars like we did for yeah. a month before moving into the new building. We had a little meeting earlier today at Stern Square right next you know, next to your office we there. We were like, should we just go get you her? Pick her up and bring her to the studio. <laughs> Maybe that would scare her. Yeah, it's a hop, skip, and a jump away from our studios here at NEPM. But I've often called the Community Foundation of Western Mass the do-good Illuminati in the sense <laughs> that it's a lot of unknown people pooling their money together for philanthropic endeavors. But what is your definition as the new president and CEO of what the Community Foundation of Western Mass is and does. Monty, that's actually a great definition because probably <laughs> anyone who knows of the Community Foundation, that's how they think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm trying to do, and I think what we're all trying to do, is really dispel a lot of myths and make sure everybody knows what the Community Foundation is. And it doesn't seem quite so mysterious. Yeah. So the Community Foundation is literally the Community Foundation for all residents of Western Mass. Everyone can be a part of it, whether it's you know, applying for grant funds as a nonprofit, applying for a scholarship when someone's a student, um, volunteering to be on a grant review committee or a scholarship review committee, or of course, donating if people have the, the means to do that. And that can be small donations, 
or it can be larger fund holders who want to really, you know, contribute significant funds to making Western Mass an even better place to live than it already is. How About how much money does the community foundation handle? So we have uh, about $250 million worth of assets. Um, that's what's sort of accumulated since 1991, and it sounds like a, a lot of money, and it is. It is. Um, so it's a really exciting sort of treasure to be able to steward. Um, we make about $15 million worth of grants each year, or we have in the last couple of years, which has seen a bit of an uptick because we were dealing with a COVID response. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, you know, we're, we aim for around that level every year. Um, and I think that can make a significant impact in our region. You are the organization behind Valley Gives Day. We are. Um, Valley Gives has been discontinued. Oh, but, but it's a brand that people a, probably remember. It, right. it certainly is. And honestly, we still have a mission to inspire people to want to support each other, to give in their communities, neighbors helping neighbors. And the name has so much resonance in the community that we really are looking for ways to kind of resurrect that and think about how it can inspire giving. And it was an inspirational thing. I've been lucky enough to know previous presidents and other vice presidents, Katie Allen Zobel and Kristen Lutz, um, who were working in that early days of the the Valley Gives Day to see how generous – this area is. We were neck and neck with huge metropolitan areas, San Francisco and places like that in regards to how many people came out to give inspired by the notion of Valley Gives Day. Yeah. And, and I actually think, you know, I, I was I've lived in this region even prior to taking this job. I live right here in Hamden County across the river in West Springfield. And I was certainly aware of Valley Gives. I contributed as well. I was so excited by, you know, reaching the, you know, trying to reach the the, the milestones and the goals that various nonprofits had. And I and I think while the exact initiative right now is in flux, I think what we saw during COVID was a direct result of what that campaign sort of inspired in people. Because once again, we saw hundreds and thousands of residents of Western Mass stepping up to say, wow, this is a really tough time for people, and we're going to donate to the COVID Response Fund. And so we were able to pool resources from thousands of people, including funds that we were able to leverage from larger foundations in Eastern Mass and and public sector money to address food security issues and all kinds of issues during COVID. So I think the inspiration to give lives on, um, and we're definitely going to continue to think about ways to to tap that spirit that people have. Yeah, if you miss what Valley Gives Day was, it was a one-day coordinated effort where hundreds, literally, of nonprofits in the area were asked, telling you what they were all about and asking for money on the same day. And nothing quite inspires generosity like generosity. Is are you taking some of the lessons that you learned from that effort from the th- from Valley Gives Day and applying it to your involvement with the Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund? That's a great segue, Calise. <laughs> That's awesome. No, definitely. I mean, I think this is yet another place where we recognize that folks here in Western Mass, and and quite frankly, all throughout Massachusetts, but this is really focused here. Um, you know, when they understand that they have a neighbor in need, they want to help out. And so we want to make sure that we're giving them a way to do that that's easy and that we're reassuring them that the money's going to go where it needs to go and get there quickly and efficiently. And so we're using all the channels, you know, the social media, getting the word out, even this conversation here today. We're working in collaboration with lots of key partners to make sure that we're not competing, that we're all kind of pulling in the same direction. Um, and I think that's what Valley Gives was all about. 
Uh, for those who haven't been following the Western Mass Farm Resiliency Fund, we learned that FEMA was not going to be able to directly support farmers. USDA has money, but it's in the form of grants. The Healy administration wanted to make something available to farmers directly that was not a loan right away. And Even they, the S- USDA is giving out loans. The USDA giving out loans, exactly, not <laughs> grants. Um, grants is what we were, what the Healy administration and uh, the United Way were hoping for. They went to United Way of Central Mass and Community Foundation of Western Mass. Tell us how those conversations began to create this fund. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think... You know, now it seems a little bit of long ago, but it was really tomorrow is the anniversary. The one month anniversary. The one month anniversary, <laughs> right? Just one month. The yeah, one month anniversary month. of the first of the massive flooding, right? And I do want to kind of reiterate. I think we've all seen it's continued to rain. It's continued to be heavy, excessive rain. So as soon as uh, I think that was a you know July ten. Those big floods happened within a couple of days. In fact, I think it was the day after. I was on the phone with uh, Governor Healy's Western Mass office. Um, Very quickly, uh, we were connected with Tim Garvin of the United Way of Central Mass. Uh, Early the next week, we all got on a a call together, uh, really with anyone who was interested. None of this is, is meant to be sort of secret Illuminati behind a curtain, but actually open to everybody to say, how should we do this? How should we get the word out? How can we work together? And I was so thrilled when Tim Garvin of the United Way of Central Mass was willing to step up and actually host and launch the fund. I think they're really well equipped to do that. Um, And we were asked, Community Foundation of Western Mass, to really coordinate the regional advisory group that includes representatives of Western Mass to make sure that we're getting the perspectives of farmers, nonprofit farms, you know, private philanthropy, other nonprofits that work with farms, people who are concerned about food security, and bring everybody together to think about the best way to, to make sure people are aware of the fund and think about how to get the funds out quickly. Well, coming up in just a little bit, we're going to hear about how much money has come into that fund if any of that money has gone out of that fund, and what the next phases are through the Community Foundation of Western Mass and United Way of Central Mass with the Mass Farm Resiliency Fund and with the new president and CEO of the Community Foundation, Megan Burke. Later in the show, we'll also celebrate Black Voices coming to Barrington Stage in Pittsfield this week. And Ursat's word nerd, Amon Shea, on why the words aspirational, blue moon, and brawl were trending this week. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Cleese Smith. And we are here with the president and CEO of the Community Foundation of Western Mass, the fifth president. When did you officially start? January 18th. So I'm just past the six-month mark. You're no longer a newborn president (laughs) of the Community Foundation of Western Mass. I'm a toddler. That's why you spilled your water all over the place. Uh, Megan, we were talking about the Western Mass uh, Farm Resiliency Fund set up by the governor, uh, coordinated by the United Way of Central Mass with the partnership of the Community Foundation of Western Mass. How much money have people of Western Mass and beyond contributed so far? Great question. So I'm really I'm proud to announce that the Community Foundation of Western Mass just yesterday announced that we, using sort of foundation unrestricted funding, have contributed $25,000 to the fund, really to send the signal that we think this is incredibly important. We care about our farmers and we want to make sure they have the assistance they need. Um, and with that, it has brought the total 
just under $250,000. So we're at a quarter of a million dollars, um, which I think is a pretty good amount of money. For less than a month. For, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. in, in, a, in, a, in a very short time. Um, we've, we've had contributions, and, and even more than the amount of money, we've had contributions from 432 separate donors. Um, and they represent eight different states. So this is even beyond Massachusetts. Mm. Um, and within Massachusetts, 157 towns. And I think that's really important because while Western Mass farmers primarily have been impacted, the food they grow feeds the entire state. And so we're really we're really pleased that folks outside of Western Mass also think this is important. And I also want to quickly say our goal in the short term is to raise a million dollars. So we have lots of room for <laughs> others to join us. And this is a two-phased approach, and we're really hoping to reach $5 million in the longer term. How much of that money has been given out? So to date, we have not given out any of the funds, um, but we do plan to make it an, uh, to announce our plans next week to get funds into the hands of farmers this month. We want to do this through a two-phased approach. The first phase would give a flat amount to each farmer who has been impacted, and it would be a quick, streamlined way to just get some funds immediately in their hands. And as you mentioned earlier, Monty, these will be grants. These would not have to be paid back. These would be funds to use however they need them, knowing that there may be other funds that come later uh, through the public sector, whether it's the state funds that were approved or USDA funds that may be able to cover crop loss and other things. This is to cover things that aren't covered through those funds. Um, And then we would plan for a second phase, most likely in the fall, which gives us more time to get more supporters to donate and contribute. And the second phase would allow us to consider the differential, the different impact that different farmers have felt. So farmers who have a greater need and less access to other funds, they would be able to get an additional amount in that second phase. You were telling me, Megan Burke, from the Community Foundation of Western Mass, that you have a weekly call with different people that are trying to figure out how to best allocate these funds. Sure. Yes. Every Monday morning, bright and early, uh, (laughs) we come together. It's myself, Tim Garvin from the United Way. Who was a guest on the show. Yes. (laughs) Phil Corman. Who's always a guest guest on the show. So I don't even need to say where he's from. CISA. Uh, (laughs) An underwriter of NEPM. And we also uh, have some... uh, government officials who join us, uh, Commissioner uh, Randall, the the Agricultural Commissioner, and Kristen Aleko from the Western Mass Office for Governor Healy. So it's a truly a public-private partnership. We come together every week to check in where we are. This is a fund that Governor Healy launched, and she is really dedicating some staff time to really help move it forward. And then the other thing I will mention is we have a bigger group that meets every two weeks that is an advisory group. And that role of that group is to really help us think through the best way to get money to farmers, to help identify the farmers who need that, to get the word out about the fund. That's not an exclusive group. We welcome, it's a virtual meeting, um, and it includes farmers themselves, nonprofit farms, um, representatives from you know foundations like ours, um, nonprofits, really anyone who's interested in really helping us think through how to make this work. Have you seen applications for the funds already, or are those just slowly starting to trickle in? So we haven't actually released a request for applications, Ah. and I'll tell you why. Um, 
We want to make this so easy for farmers that it doesn't even require an application Mm -hmm. for the first round. We understand farmers are dealing with a lot right now. They're trying to clean up the mess from the flooding. They're trying to still run their farms in areas that haven't been damaged. This is a really busy time for farmers. And so when we think about how to make this streamlined, we really, that's why we're talking about making a, you know, a flat donation to all farms who have been impacted. And there's been a lot of efforts to identify what those farms are um, and just get the money out without an application. It's too bad because I know farmers love paperwork. (laughs) We want to trust them. (laughs) Who doesn't love paperwork? Uh, Megan Burke, who is the new CEO of the Community Foundation of Western Mass, um, you do things, of course, other than this Western Mass Farm Resiliency Fund. And there's a couple of initiatives I want to talk about before uh, we have to let you go. Talk about what the uh, equity in the 413 Western Mass Racial Equity Summit is all about. I'd be happy to. Um, obviously, we've picked up on your excellent naming of the fabulous 413. <laughs> so just to give that we, a little plug. We didn't come up with the area code, but <laughs> we'll, take the, we'll take the win. Um, so Community Foundation is working with a robust set of great partners, and we're coordinating the first ever Western Mass Racial Equity Summit. It's going to be held here in Springfield. It's an all-day event on October 24th at the Sheraton. We opened ticket sales today. Mm. So there's a, a you can go right onto our website, communityfoundation.org, click to register for this event. It's really open to everybody. And we have some really concrete goals to get the word out about how to make sure that all our workplaces um, are prepared and ready to welcome a diverse set of workers onto their workforce, that workers know how to find out about a diverse set of opportunities that match their interests, and really think about other ways that we can all work together to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout Western Mass. I think we're going to have to have people on in anticipation of that event for sure. Oh, for sure. And what about Valley Creates? So Valley Creates is our sort of signature um, arts and creativity program that really works to support uh, the creative ecosystem all throughout Western Mass. And this is something that we actually started about seven years ago, and I keep hearing that people don't know about it. Uh-huh. And so we need to talk about it more. <laughs> um, it's really exciting. It's it, We are supporting artists, individual artists directly, which is relatively new for us. Um, and it's providing them with some funds to just do what they do, be creative. It's focused on... Um, Artists who traditionally haven't gotten support, artists of color, rural artists, and it also works to connect them and to connect them to arts organizations so that we can have an even more flourishing arts sector in our community. That is the new president and CEO, now a toddler, of the Community Foundation (laughs) of Western Mass, Megan Burke. No more the do-good Illuminati. The do-good Illuminati unmasked, and we hope to hear... More about um, what the Farm Resiliency Fund in particular will be doing. We get to call them the benevolent Illuminati. I love that. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us, Megan Burke. (laughs) Later (laughs) in the show. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. (laughs) Ursat's word nerd Ammon Shea on the way. Why were the words aspirational, blue moon, and brawl were trending this week? And up next, we'll celebrate Black Voices coming to Barrington Stage and Pittsfield this week with Associate Director of Community Engagement and DEIA Coordinator for Barrington Stage, Sharon Fraser McLean. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Okay, so I'm here with Sharon 
Fraser McLean, who is in charge of community engagement and EDI coordinator for Barrington Stage and who is producing this weekend a celebration of black voices at Barrington Stage, a three-day celebration of the black community in the Berkshires. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Oh, no problem at all. Before we do too much about your event specifically, can I just hear your thoughts on the importance of having events like this at times that are not February? Well, I will say first and foremost, the intentionality behind the initiative Black Voices Matter, it's a year-long initiative. So there will never be anything taking place just in February. I will say the initiative started in 2020 when the Black Lives Matter movement was really prominent when all the murders were going on. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many others. You know, a lot of companies and organizations were making blatant statements of Black Lives Matter. So this initiative was created, you know, using art as a tool to respond for Black community members to be able to respond and share their thoughts, their feelings, and all that stuff going on during that time. And one of the commitments of the organization was to, like you said, not only prioritize minorities during this time, but to prioritize them all the time. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do is, because it's a year-long initiative, is to continuously engage BIPOC community members and artists throughout the year. You're showcasing both young voices and adult voices with this celebration, which I think is also really important. Can we speak a little bit about the intergenerational aspect of your celebration? Absolutely. So the purpose of the platform is to have a space for everyone. So we talk about age, we talk about identity. The only requirement is that you're BIPOC. That's the only requirement. And then because I want to be able to engage as many people as possible, what I intentionally do is make sure that I ask the community, you know, what is it that you want? What is it that you want to showcase and then just provide the support? Because it's not just an entertainment platform. It's also an educational platform. It's so important to mix up the groups for the young people to be able to learn from the older, the older to learn from the young. But literally everyone that sits in the audience can learn from the person on stage. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So I always much. say my mantra is celebrate, educate, empower. So you're celebrating your history, your heritage, and your culture. You're educating your counterpart, and you're empowering the one who's on stage. Fantastic. Have the needs of the community that you're serving, or rather have what they asked for, changed over the three years of this festival? Absolutely. <laughs> I always say the initial idea of the platform was just, I call it a garden. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the more you plant, the more there is to actually harvest. Mm -hmm. But what I've done over the course of the years is really give the community more agency over that garden. Mm -hmm. So it's like, here's the platform. So every year I start off with, hey guys, we're back. You know, we're up again this year. What is it that you would like to see? But then also on the other side, what I do every year at the end of the season is I take an audit mm -hmm. of what worked well, what were the challenges. And I always challenge myself to actually address, you know, real things in real time. So for example, over the past two years, it's been very hard engaging young people and retaining them throughout the process that it takes to content build and actually make it to the stage, whether it's scheduling with the parents, whether, you know, they do summer camp during the day and then it's late at night for them to, you know, get to rehearsal. So I had kids that were tired. They really wanted to participate, but trying to figure out a way to do it in a manner where 
where it's healthy for them Mm -hmm. and it's responsible of us as adults. So this year, one of the different things that's really near and dear to me is I created a performing arts camp solely for BIPOC kids. Mm. So this way the kids still are able to participate. They're still getting this experience, but it's also addressing a lot of real life issues that are going on. So for example, food insecurity. We know that when kids are out of school, some kids struggle with having those, you know, missing those meals. Mm -hmm. Also quality childcare. Even when, when we think of performing arts programs, a lot of them are mostly white students where the minority kid is usually the only one in the room. Mm-hmm. So creating this affinity space, what I did was I partnered with a local community organization that provides free lunch to the community daily, and they provide lunch for the kids. So this program, it, not only is it free, but they get free breakfast, free lunch. The program is free, but then also they're paid a stipend at the end for their participation. So I still want to, you know, like every other performer on the platform, honor their creativity and the time that it takes to actually put a performance together and then actually perform on a stage. So this is just the one week pilot camp that we're piloting actually right now. (laughs) (laughs) And um, the kids, they're coming together and they're devising an original play with the support of a professional director, music director, and a professional choreographer, along with a teaching artist. So right now they're creating their own piece. They will in turn have a showcase where they perform for the public and their families this Friday. That's wonderful. I'm speaking with Sharon Frazier McLean, who is helming this celebration of Black voices at Barrington Stage starting on Thursday, going through Saturday. Do you have plans to expand that summer camp? Plans to expand it to be like longer or or do more with it? With the summer camp, we were only able to take 12 participants. So I had a lot of parents that were reaching out that wanted their kids to participate, but we learned that, you know, parents already had summer vacations planned and things like that. So as I thought about this experience and how to expand it and better serve the students, we thought about a leadership model. So the program is potentially building future teaching artists. So what's going to happen is this group of kids, they're going to be invited back for a winter session that takes place during winter break when school is out. Mm -hmm. And then a third session that will take place because this is actually, like I said, a pilot program. Mm -hmm. I'm looking to use it as a a model to build leadership in young people as we start to think about the next generation of teaching artists. This cohort that we have now, they will be returning for a second session that will take place during winter break when school's out. And then a third session that will take place during spring break when school is out again. So again, now the parents have childcare, the kids will have access to healthy meals and things like that. But each session they come back, they're going to be expanding on the skills that they're being taught the previous session. So this first one is more like an introduction to device theater and performing. And then ultimately the goal is by the end of the third round, they're already at a point of peer-to-peer mentoring and taking more of a leadership role in creating the piece because the goal is ultimately to start to spark interest and start building that next generation of BIPOC teaching artists. So, so cool. <laughs> you have done this festival as a one-day festival, as a five-day spe- festival, and this year is a three-day festival. Is there a certain sweet spot in the number of days that that makes this work? <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> Look, that's facts. That's facts and that's very real. And that affects a lot of things. So you know what? Like that answer is incredibly valid. (laughs) We're making space for it. No, but to be... But to be honest, it started, like you said, as a five day. It, w- it was a lot. 
Mm-hmm. And especially, I'm going to be honest too, is the cost, you mm-hmm. know, creating that space is very expensive and all, you know, all of the money is great. I receive a lot of grants and, you know, donor contributions for it to be feasible. It just made more sense to do the six events over the course of four days. So that way, when you think about also to people scheduling, you know, it's harder to get a crowd of people to come out on a work night than it is to come out on a weekend. So Thursday to Sunday works really well because think about it. When we were clubbing, the weekend starts on Thursday. (laughs) Right, right. right. (laughs) So really, it just, you know, it just made sense as the years went on, you know, keep the same number of events, but shorten the number of days. Mm-hmm. And it actually helps with the commitment of people because one of the things that I do like to do is I call all the dollars raised. I call them black dollars yeah. where we hire local community members to come and actually fill the roles. So, you know, the ushers, there are no true volunteers, mm-hmm. you know, the ushers, the people that set up and tear down security and all of that. They're all people that are being paid for their contributions to making this happen. You know, I try to be mindful of people's actual ability to commit to long-term things. And this, it just made sense this way. Have you seen changes in either the programming or general community involvement at Barrington Stage since the development of this festival? Yes. What I love about the festival is I call it an entry point into the organization. Ultimately, the organization on the flip side, on the DEIA side that I also work on is, you know, truly integrating our space for minorities to feel like they are welcome and that they have ownership of the space also. Mm -hmm. So there's two things. So there's this platform where it's like a meet them where they are, get to know them, start to highlight their talents and their gifts to show not only our organization, but all of the arts and culture organization who's here. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the time we do outsource, you know, we, we look to New York City a lot for the talent, but not recognizing who's already here and our responsibility to the community that we actually live in and serve. So one of the things that I do love is that once people are introduced via the platform, my commitment is to create a pipeline into the organization. So I have people that have done multiple things within the organization now, whether they've done shows, whether they've came on, my music director has done some um, accompaniment for the show for auditions and things like that. I have people that started on the platform that have actually acted in some shows or simply end up working seasonally at Barrington. So now it's like when opportunities come up and we have positions available, we have this pool of people who are local that we can tap into first. And then that helps our local communities. You know, it's really community building through the art. That is so cool. And we've talked around it enough. You should tell us about what actually happens at the celebration of Black Voices. What actually happens over the course of these three days? We always start with a kickoff concert with Brown Skin Band out of Syracuse. And I say that sets the tone for the festival. It's truly a celebration. It's a everyone welcome, you know, under this tent with no with no barriers. The first year there was a, a fence that was put up and it, you know, it kept people out. People didn't know they were welcome. So it's an, it's such a welcoming environment that you will see joy. You know, I love to say black joy mm-hmm. because there aren't a lot of things solely for the black community, especially being a black community member myself, bringing back that old school feeling of like, a you know, a unity vibe, a united front in a comfortable manner. You know, a lot of the times we unite under tragedy. You know, we got to get together because we need to boycott or we need to pick it and things like that. But this is just, we're getting together to, to laugh, to dance, to celebrate, to have a good time. 
And that's truly what the whole celebration of Black Voices Festival is. It's allowing these artists a platform to be heard, but also allowing the audience, especially Black audience members, to have something that they can feel and relate to in a genuine and authentic manner versus having to find their place somewhere. You know, a lot of the times, a lot of the art here is catered more towards, you know, the predominantly white population because that's what their patron base looks like. Right. So to authentically be able to go into a space and be yourself and, and to show that I always tell everyone this work for me is legacy building, you know, for my kids, mm -hmm. for them to be able to see positivity, to be able to see unity and to have a creative way to interact with one another. So to be able to foster and build that space every year, it, it grows in a manner mm -hmm. of the people feeling like, wow, finally somebody gets it. Somebody's truly listening to us. And I always respond, yeah, I'm listening because I asked and I'm doing simply what you said, using the resources to produce exactly what it is that you asked for. And I think with that, I tell everybody, this is how you build trust you know, within the minority community, because trust is the basis of all healthy relationships. And then once we start to do that, and they start to get to know who you are and know that you are actually someone who's trying to support them and uplift them, then they're going to freely walk into your spaces because you're in relationship. Mm -hmm. So I always say my goal is intentional relationship building. Is there something that you were not able to incorporate into the programming this year that you would really love to get incorporated in next year's celebration? So one of the things that we've tried last year was um, taking a look outside of the performing piece, taking um, an assessment of the Black community and what their needs are. And one of the things that I spoke about with my co-producer, Mel Powers, was that it's so important for Black people to vote. It's so important for us to have a seat at the table, for us, for our voices to be heard. So when decisions are being made on our behalf, they're being made with our voice considered. So we attempted to do voter registration last year at the festival. We had a goal of simply five people, which we did reach that goal. But I think for us, even this year and moving forward is to spend more time educating the community members about that, the importance of voting and having your voice heard in your community. Thank you so much for taking this time with me, Sharon Fraser-McLean, who is the Community Engagement and EDI Coordinator for Barrington Stage. Her celebration of Black Voices starts tomorrow with a concert at 6 p.m. And again, like this is, it sounds like the best cookout and y'all have been invited, so go. The events are free. Thank you so much. That's right. <laughs> Full disclosure, Barrington Stage Company is an underwriter of NEPM. And quick correction, I had her position wrong during the whole interview. And she was kind enough to correct me. So she is the Associate Director of Community Engagement and DEIA Coordinator for Barrington Stage Company. Up next, we'll find out why aspirational and brawl were trending at our dictionary in Springfield. We'll talk with Ammon Shea from Merriam-Webster. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Time for one last word nerd segment. Don't say last. He for now, with our self-described ersatz word nerd 
And Merriam-Webster defines ersatz as being a usually artificial and inferior substitute or imitation. Uh, for those who were concerned that we were calling Ammon Shea ersatz on the radio, <laughs> uh, we do want to remind the listener and or the management here. Oh. That was Ammon Shea's definition of himself. Oh my gosh, the shade. Anyway. <laughs> but we're so glad to have you back because uh, Ammon Shea from our fair dictionary in Springfield, Massachusetts, is amongst other things for Merriam-Webster, keeping an eye on words that are trending. And some of the words that have been trending this week have been less depressing, I think, than uh, some other weeks that we've had you on, Ammon. I feel like we got kind of a lighter sandwich with, with Ammon, where like on the ends where are things that are kind of delightful, yeah, like polemic and the words from this week. And then in the middle was just this depression, yeah. <laughs> this creamy depression center. We journey. get kind of dystopian spikes sometimes with our words. It really depends on what's going on. Yeah. Tracks. Uh, well, I, I think one of the words that, that really spiked was aspirational. Last Sunday, I think Donald Trump's lawyer was appearing on numerous television shows and he made the, the argument that Donald Trump was, was being aspirational when he asked, I think it was... Um, Mike Pence to not certify the election, which many other people have characterized as an illegal action. Hold on one second. That was an aspirational ask. He's entitled to petition even state government. But that doesn't that doesn't involve an obstruction of federal government. And so Donald Trump's lawyer said that this was an aspirational act. And so I think a lot of people kind of came to the dictionary at that point to see what aspirational means. And, you know, that's reasonable, I think. And and we, we define it as of relating to or characterized by aspiration, which of course raises the question of what aspiration is. And in this case, it likely means it's a, a strong desire to achieve something high or great. So you can say, I have aspirations towards this thing or etc. Aspiration, though, it, it does have a, a number of other meanings, which could be confusing to people, such as it's the act of breathing, right. especially of breathing in. It's like respiration. Um, it's, right. Breathing but out. from the other and end. It's, it's uh, an audible breath that accompanies or comprises the speech sound. And, and, and the reason for this is that aspiration, well, it, it, it comes, as many words in English do, it comes from Latin. And in part, it comes from the Latin word sperare, which means to breathe. And sperare, it serves, interestingly enough, as... As And I, I should say, usually when you hear somebody talking about etymology and they say, interestingly enough, it's a good cue to leave the conversation. Because it's pretty <laughs> much never going to actually be interesting. <laughs> but in this case, I, I think maybe it is because Sperari serves as the, the root for a number of other words in English, such as inspire, transpire. And unfortunately enough, in this case, it's part of the root of conspire. So. Uh -huh. <laughs> Those spires. I love the word aspiration, um, usually, and now I, I have I look less favorably upon it, given building. the current context. So, <laughs> but that's an interesting reason for people to go look it up. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, blue moon was also a trending word because uh, there were a number of news stories about how we're going to have one of these in August, and um, in this case, it's. Uh, a blue moon is the second full moon in a calendar month, and we're going to be having one of those on August 30th. This is a, a use of the word that's been around since the early 20th century. But before this, blue moon did have other meanings. And the earliest use of blue moon, going back hundreds and hundreds of years ago, 
was people used to sometimes just talk about a moon that was blue and some dictionaries such as the OED do define that a moon which is or appears to be blue but there was also another sense of blue moon which was um something that happens very infrequently which actually comes well before the actual one referring to a specific moon and uh i, I you know it's the the temporal sense of blue moon it, kind of like it's early 19th century. And uh, I just found a citation from a book called St. Leonard's Forest, which was, I was just feeling myself jolly, as I might say. And you tell me, Jeremy, you must go and I must sit down and drink till a blue moon. Um, and so, you <laughs> know, there. not, in, not an entirely set semantic uh, <laughs> function, but it was generally something which happened infrequently, which happened rarely. And also not um, encourageable behavior. Don't drink until blue moon. No. Right. Note to listeners. Don't right. Drink. <laughs> And so that's been around well before we actually started referring to the double moon in a month. Really? So it was used yeah. as this sort of more poetic thing previous to the idea that w there were two full moons in, in a month. Yes. And that it, it, it seems to have been uh, something that came up in um, in London first is where it came from. It was kind of just maybe not poetic as much as kind of colloquial or slang. Mm. Well, I mean, there's also the idea like there's the old uh, country songs about blue moon being something that makes you feel sad. You are, When you are sure. sad, you are encompassing the you saw me standing alone without a dream right. in my heart, without right. a love of my own, uh, that kind of idea. But when did blue moon for two full moons in a month come into common use? Uh, I think it was about 1937 or so. Oh, really uh -huh. recently. Wow, so that is pretty yeah. recent. And the other thing yeah. to keep in mind is if you want to say once in a blue moon, which means rarely according to nasa blue moons are not all that rare on average there'll be one blue moon at least every two and a half years so yeah you know nasa is always spoiling the fun. <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of their unspoken role it seems i mean i was shameless figuring... plug katie holman astronaut from nasa will be on our show on monday <laughs> and she's gonna spoil someone's fun i can tell right now <laughs> those scientists they're always spoiling everything not like those madcap lexicographers out there who say yeah if it feels good do it I love say that. it Go ahead. Oh, Words man. mean what you want them to mean. <laughs> and we're speaking with one of those madcap lexicographers now, speaking Ammon Speaking of Shea. people from whom you should run when they start saying, well, actually. <laughs> well, actually. Another fun, well, there's a, there are fun elements to this word. It's ultimately not a, a, a very fun occasion, but there is a word that has been trending this week that I think right. many and, people and have been hearing about. Of course, we should preface this by saying, under no conditions do we ever condone violence. Yes. But a lot of people have been looking up the word brawl lately. Hmm. Um, and it because of a, a kind of dockside brawl that, that attracted a lot of attention in subsequent memes in which some people were on a boat and the other people on a boat needed to put their boat where that first boat was and the first boat didn't want to move and there was uh, a kind of brawl that resulted and uh, people seemed to be very excited about this brawl. Hard not to think it was a racially charged brawl in Montgomery, yeah, Alabama. Yeah, I, I think we can say it was a racially charged brawl pretty some, safely. Some assumptions can be made about that also. Key point of information, like the, the larger boat was, I do believe, either city-sanctioned or, or state-sanctioned um, riverboat tour. So the one side of this are all people working <laughs> right somebody who was supposed to they be are there supposed working. to chartered and timed trips to come into the dock and other people in a smaller pontoon who just didn't want to move the more meme-worthy aspects of this 
have to do with the tossing of a hat into the air. Uh, um, a chair. The arrival of a chair. The and desperate swimming across uh, some sort of canal to enter the melee. And my favorite meme about this so far is people that reenacted the brawl at their pool party. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I can't stop no. watching it. That last one I was oh, not aware oh, of. Oh, my God. I'll show it to you right after. And, it and is. Again, it's like too my, much. My favorite so far has been the, the gentleman on TikTok who rewrote words to the Black National Anthem for this particular incident. Lift every chair and swing. Tell us how Merriam-Webster mm. defines brawl, Ammon Shea. Well, first I want to say that I, I really like the arrival of a chair as a description. Yes. There. <laughs> um, but well, we define brawl both as a verb and as a noun. So as a verb, it just means to quarrel or fight noisily or to make a loud, confused noise. Uh, but as a noun, as in this case, it's a noisy quarrel or fight and also a loud tumultuous noise. Quite honestly, I don't think people use the noise sense nearly as often as they use the fight sense. Yeah. But one of the things that's nice about English is that we have this incredible richness and there are many, many synonyms for brawl. Yes. Both as a verb and as a noun. And and some of these are really kind of lovely and little used. And and so if you have a brawl coming up in the future and you want to come up with a new word, I mean, there's this Donny Brook and fisticuffs and spat. Uh, scrap is always a nice one, oh, as yeah. is, uh, you know, wrangle or ruckus. Ruckus always has a nice word. Uh, bring the ruckus. Kind of... Bring the ruckus. People like ruckus. I like ruction, which is similar to ruckus. Ruction. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and some of them, they, they, they kind of go from disputation to battle royale. You can have some French if you want to have a little Gallic flair, this contretemps. Uh-huh. Uh, rhubarb, which is a kind of little used one these days, I have to say. Never rub another man's rhubarb. Never rub another man's rhubarb. <laughs> Said the Joker in the 1989 <laughs> Tim Burton Batman movie, but doesn't quite fit in this regard, but comes pretty close. Mm-hmm. And if you want to use one that's more like a verb, I, I think argufy as, as a nice kind of sound. Argufy is yeah. beautiful. It, it, it is. Though, and, and one who argufies is, perhaps unsurprisingly, an argufier. <laughs> and we don't hear that word nearly often enough. No. It, it should be said that argufy does apply mostly to verbal disputes and not those involving a chair. Um, <laughs> or a hat and, tossed and, into the air. You know, I, I do have to say that the riches of the English language are seemingly inexhaustible, but I did spend a fair amount of time this morning looking in every dictionary I could find to see if there was a word meaning to hit someone with a chair. And we do not have such a word. There's so, no chair equivalent of defenestration. Yeah, right. To push out a window, right? Yeah. No, no, there's not. But, you know, as the linguists would, would often argue, you know, the fact that we do not have a word for it just means that you put together a bunch of words and you talk about hitting someone with a chair. And that's what's so delightful about language is that you don't need to have a single word. You can just talk about the appearance of a chair. A chair appears. You know? And and you're still conveying the the broad and even the specific kind of concept that you were trying to be going for there. And so we don't need to have a single word to convey this idea. We just need to stitch them together, and you really know what we're talking about. So my campaigns to make conchuration should maybe like stop. You can still do that too. I mean, I think one word or five words, we're still getting the picture in our heads. Everybody knows what kind of chair we're talking about and what the chair is doing. We know what face planting is. What about face seating? <laughs> this is how the language evolves.
I mean, I have said to people, sit your face down. Yeah. I also love that brawl does so many things at once. Like, it's a verb. It's a noun. It's automatopoetic. It sounds like what, yeah. what it does. It, it makes you want to roar. Melee, I, I love that word, and I think I use that even in my description of what happened in Montgomery, Alabama. But I don't know if this rises to the level of melee in regards to Merriam-Webster's definition of that word, Amon Shea. Uh, if you want it to, I think it does. I think it, so then it does. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we do list melee as, as, as a synonym of brawl. You know, and I don't think you can ever say that any two words are exactly synonymous because words tend to have connotations and denotations. They have you know, kind of extended meanings. They have meanings that are particular to the person that is using them. But I, I think that melee and brawl have significant semantic overlap. Amon Shea, it has been a delight having you as our ersatz word nerd. <laughs> I think that you calling yourself that just shows your level of humility, but you have been uh, an excellent substitute word nerd for these past few weeks for Emily Brewster. And I hope this won't be the last time we talk. And I hope we talk frequently about the words that are trending in the dictionary because it's an awful lot of fun. As do I. It has been, it's been a, a pure delight to be here. <laughs> Double Wu Tang Day. Yeah, we had a lot of Wu Tang because you know they were bringing the ruckus in that in that melee in that brawl. <laughs> Yesterday, you may have caught us at Tanglewood, a Tanglewood on parade. A quick follow up because we you know we ended at our usual time mm-hmm. and then we were wanting to meet John Williams. We did not get to meet. John Williams. <sighs> it was such a it was a high hope that we'd get John Williams on that Keith Lockhart, the current Bia Pops conductor, might interview John Williams with us, but to no avail. However, we did get to see John Williams. And it was amazing. It was amazing. For a 91-year-old guy who's arguably one of the most important musicians of the last 100 years to mm-hmm. still be putting his all out there. And still making stuff like Keith Lockhart was saying. He like... keeps unretiring himself. They're like, they're making three <laughs> more Star Wars movies? I'm, I'm in. in. I'm in. Yeah. They've got a whole other Indiana Jones. Yeah. I'll do it. Do Are need... you sure you want to keep making Indiana Jones? <laughs> think... I'll keep making these scores. So we did get to see him up close. It was wonderful. It was wonderful to spend time there at Tanglewood. And uh, hopefully you got to hear the show because I thought we had a great chat with Keith Lockhart uh, mm-hmm. and the, some of the folks from the BSL. Mm-hmm. It right. was really, real cool. We also got to see the the young conductor conducting in front of the audience. And the, uh, way Twice. That, the way that he was received by the orchestra and the audience was really inspirational to see so and we have a little bit of a bso um, musical treat as we give you our outro here but tomorrow on the fabulous 413 what's more american than beer i can think of several things but the art of norman rockwell is right up there this saturday at the norman rockwell museum in stockbridge is the return of the art of brewing festival and we'll hear all about it Thursday on the fabulous 413. Plus, we'll learn how a South Deerfield Farm is bringing a little more food security to the city of Holyoke. Oh, there it is. And McGoverning <laughs> with Congressman Jim McGovern. Got a question for him? You can email the fab413 at nepm.org. We're going to talk once again about his poorly named plant act, but why it's <laughs> potentially doing some good things for farmers in our area. Our director is Tony, still on Plague Watch done. Our engineer is Betsy. It's not in there, Lankto. Our technical team is Bart. He's not here, Rankin, Kara, Copod, Conspirator, Foster, and Punk Rude Boy Dubay. Special shout out to Graham, soon to be international man of mystery Griffith. Thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Super Tramp, Fanny, Courtney Barnett, The Beatles, NBC's Meet the Press, Elvis Presley, Curtis Mayfield, Wu-Tang Clan, Trey Forte on TikTok, and the BSO, 
for letting us record this during their rehearsal yesterday. I'm Khalees Smith. I'm Monty Belmonte. See you tomorrow on The Fabulous 413.